Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Andrew Bolton, a senior lecturer on copywriting and creative advertising at the Uni of Lincoln. Andrew has over a decade's experience writing for big brands, tiny brands, and even a man who carved dolphins out of cheese. Despite having little or no grasp of the semicolon, Andrew writes a regular column for The Drum and penned the best-selling book, Copywriting Is. Not content with only one bestseller, Andrew recently ventured into storybook land, creating what we believe is the first children's book about copywriting. Adele writes an ad. Andrew says, my writing ambition is to create a thriller movie script bad enough for Bruce Willis to turn down. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Your voice is so silly. (laughs) Oh dear, thank you. Well, that comes up in the quick fire, so let's get started. Right, number one, pen or pencil? Uh, pencil. Poop. Poop. <laughs> Copywriting is, or Adele writes an ad? Oh, I, uh, I couldn't possibly... That's like a Sophie's Choice question, isn't it? Um, no, I refuse. Oh, okay. Right, no more refusals. Right, uh, Bruce Willis or Nicolas Cage? Nicolas Cage, every single time. Every single time. Top of the hill or bottom of the hill? It's a Lincoln one. But yeah, no, it is a Lincoln one. The top of the hill is lovely, uh, but very, very difficult to get to. The bottom of the hill is gross, uh, but very easy to get to. So I'm going to say top of the hill. If you can survive the climb, as I, I have done on occasion, uh, it's, it's worth it. Top of the hill. Okay, three more. Umbongo or Hoobla Who? Uh, umbongo only because I know how upset you got uh, trying to Photoshop uh, a can of a bongo. It was the angriest I've seen you in all the time I've known you, and I felt like you were going to walk away from the whole project purely based on that. That's such an arsehole. Right, uh, two more. Uh, bitten by a giraffe or having 50p stolen by Roy Keane? Both upsetting. Both really happened to me in my in my childhood. I think the Roy Keane thing because I, he's he's sort of he's a prominent media figure, and he, he's kind of seemed to have haunted my existence uh, since that. But he took he took fifty p off me. How did that? Tell me more. Tell me more. I it was a junior Reds. Uh, it was a junior Reds. I, I live in Nottingham. It was when Roy Keane played for Nottingham, and it was like a junior Reds thing. So you'd go off and do some training on the. Um, on the sort of the, the the forest training pitches, and afterwards you got to meet the players, and all the players were there, and you get your photos taken with them. And Roy Keane was just sat on a stool, like he was about to do some sort of very aggressive stand-up comedy. And, and uh, I went over to get my photo with him, and he didn't smile. He was very sort of you know Roy Keane-ish, and he had a can of coke on the floor, and I kicked it over. I was like, shit. Uh, and then my mum was like, what? Well, you've got to go and give him fifty p, you know, to get a new can of coke. And I didn't question that. I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, I will. And I went and gave, to give him 50p and he was like, he just took it. And and that was kind of that. And it was only many, many years later, I thought, 
He, he took 50p off a child <laughs> uh, to get a can of Coke that I'm sure he hadn't just purchased out of his own uh, wealthy pockets. So it was a weird, a weird sort of encounter with, you know, a hero uh, at the time, at least. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of you know, it, it's never really I've never really come to terms with, with how it all unfolded. If I could relive it again, I feel I'd do exactly the same thing and and kind of you know sign up for the for the decades of doubt and shame. Amazing! What a ridiculous story. Right, last one then. Um, my voice or the voice of a cartoon toilet brush? They're the same thing. <laughs> I think that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Okay, that was fun. Let's do it again. Yeah, well, to start the show, as I hope you know, we like to celebrate the weird and wonderful routes that guests take in their career. And we know from your blog, English Teachers Meet Copywriters, that you feel copywriting too often is something a person stumbles into. Too seldom are young creatives aware of this life at the time when their biggest choices are made. So what was your first ever job and then how did you stumble into it? I I so sort of, you know, the the shitty jobs you do when you are in sixth form and you're just trying to make money for your kind of night out and to go and, you know, buy something terrible from Topman. Uh, our home base was was kind of the defining the defining one. Uh working at home base with just loads of other lads from my sixth form. My only real memory of it is I stole I stole a lot of batteries. Uh I I stole you know, hundreds, I'd say, of batteries. And it felt like that was my... And I gave them away. I gave them to anyone I know who needed a battery. But it felt like that was me sort of taking a little bit back from the capitalist system. <laughs> the Robin Hood of the battery world. Absolutely. I, I've probably still got some of those batteries. I don't know how good they'd be sort of 25 years on. So that was kind of my sort of part-time world. Nothing very kind of extraordinary while I, while I was young. And then I, I went travelling uh, from university. And that's kind of when I'd always loved writing. I'd always really enjoyed it. I'd always thought, uh, you know, I'd written terrible stories and I'd, I'd even written a radio play. I'd written a radio play about uh, like a spy, the kind of thing that, the, that John Le Carre would throw into his bin and set on fire. That was the sort of the level my radio play was at. Um, but I'd written it and at the time I thought it was brilliant. I'm going to get something on sort of an afternoon play. And I knew I knew that writing was something that I would want to do with my life in some way, but I didn't know or didn't see how writing could be the main thing I did with my life. No one had ever had that conversation with me. No one had ever sort of suggested uh, suggested what the sort of the route, the possible routes were, the possible um, possible directions. It was very much if you took English literature, say at A level, your teacher would be like, "Well, if you want to go to university and do English literature, then you can go and read, you know, three years more worth of books, and you'll probably come out the other end and you'll come back and you'll teach English literature. And it was this sort of weird and sort of very sort of depressing cycle where there was no way to kind of break out of that and actually do anything other than just kind of read and interpret the books that other people had written. Um, You know, they said if you wanted to be a novelist, it was very unlikely that you would succeed in that. And if you wanted to be a journalist, then you could possibly get a job in that, but it would be low paid and miserable. And so you've got this very bleak picture of of kind of what the future looked like if you were determined to have writing uh, as kind of, you know, at the centre of your, your life or the centre of your professional life, at least. So anyway, so I went I went travelling. I did a ridiculous degree. I did a sociology degree that I've, li- I've never used uh, uh, at the time or since, and that isn't a problem with the degree. It just I, I couldn't have cared less about it. And I, I think if you're, you know, teaching university students now, 
you don't care about what you signed up to do for for three years, especially at the moment if you're paying twenty seven thousand pound plus for the privilege. Uh, don't do it. Get out of it. Don't go to university. Don't do it for the sake of it. Because um, that's precisely what I did, and it was you know it was a waste of time. So I went travelling, and I stumbled into some writing jobs. And I did a weird job where I worked for Yellow Pages in Australia. I started off like doing data entry at Yellow Pages. I think it was called Census. And then I got chatting to the people who would write the adverts. And they would they'd ring up these sort of like these mad Australian farmers who are, you know, out deep in deep in the bush and they'd say, What do you want it to say in your uh in your advert in Yellow Pages? And I got into that and I, you know, I wasn't very good at it, but I, I liked the idea of someone would sort of say, this is what I kind of want to say about my business. This is kind of, you know, what, what I do really well. This is why I think people should choose us. And I would have to kind of craft that into something that would fit into these sort of tiny little boxes. So that was fun. You know, I thought, okay, this is great. It's not the most creatively fulfilling, but this is me using something finally in a, you know, in a part-time job, using something that I'm actually good at. And I never had that experience. And then I, d- I did some f- writing some football reports for a, a paper in Sydney. And uh, that would be in, like, English football matches. I'd have to go to the casino uh, in, I think it was Darling Harbour or something Harbour. So go sit in the casino because I didn't have a telly and I couldn't watch the game. So I'd go and sit in this casino, spend loads of money, just kind of sitting there, just drinking and, and watching a football game, a uh, football match. And then I'd sort of submit my copy like, you know, an hour after it had finished. And this was all obviously the middle of the night because it was English times for English kickoffs. And I'd, I'd sort of send it in and, and my sub-editors would, would sort of, you know, shave off about 800 words to get it <laughs> down to the actual word count. And I'd, I'd see myself in the paper with a byline. And it was brilliant. I absolutely sort of loved it. And then I came back to the UK and I thought, well, let's give it a go. Let's see if I can find a kind of a job that, that involves writing. And completely by accident, completely by chance, I found Egg. The credit card company, which hopefully some of your listeners will remember, but it was this quite, you know, funky, edgy for a credit card company brand, you know, back back in the early 2000s, based in Derby, based on Pride Park in Derby. And they were looking for a copywriter. And I, I saw this advert pop up and I thought, I've never, ever heard that word. I've got no idea what that means. And I thought, well, maybe it's something to do with copyright and trademark and, you know, working with inventors. And But no, I read on and it was about writing and it was about writing marketing material and kind of customer communications. And I so I, I kind of cobbled together a portfolio of some stuff I had really worked on. I'd set myself some some briefs and did some really, really terrible adverts. I did one that was all about getting uh, rebranding Dairy Lee Triangles so that they'd be like an adult cheese board choice. And I did a really awful job of it. And I went in and I, I got interviewed by a brilliant guy called Julian Panico, who was the head of copy uh, for Egg. And he, he sort of saw enough and he said, yeah, we'll, we'll sort of give you a chance. And I, I went to work in their internal agency, met one of my, my sort of best mates there, Claire Blythe, who was the sort of the head of the copy for the Derby branch. And, and her and Julian taught me loads of stuff, let me have a go at, at kind of everything. And, and it, that was it, completely by accident. You know, the, the complete chance of opening a particular page on a job search site at a particular moment and, and sort of someone willing to sort of take a chance on someone with no real sort of background or experience. And and that was sort of no turning back from that. And I'd, I'd probably been doing it for about a week, two weeks. And I thought, I never, this isn't grown up work. 
you know, this isn't, I, there were loads of really sort of brilliant mates there and we, we messed around and it was very silly and you got to think about having ideas and, you know, you could go and have a two and a half hour lunch at a walkabout because it was creative time. And um, you can see why the bank sort of failed <laughs> by our, our kind of attitude <laughs> and our diligence. But at the time it was incredible. And I thought, this is it. This is exactly what I want to do. I, you know, anything else I'd be doing other than this would be, would be a sham it would be me me kind of pretending to be a grown-up and pretending to kind of fit in into this professional adult world and I just thought that uh, you know in that moment and have continued to think you know even now how lucky you know how lucky I was to kind of arrive at that uh, that kind of situation and how many people must miss out on that how many people aren't as lucky as I was uh, and that's kind of always stayed with me. So the blog you mentioned right at the very start about English teachers, let's you know meet copywriters and, and introduce those two worlds. I, th- I think I've got responsibility as someone who you know fluked my way into this incredible life that I love and cherish and and you know hopefully I'm, I'm good at and doing good work at. Uh, I've I've got responsibility to tell more people about it, and that's kind of what I'm doing through the course at uni. You know, I teach on the creative writing course now as well as the creative advertising course but it's something that every copywriter could and should be doing you don't have to kind of have that platform of being a being a lecturer being a teacher to tell a young creative person about this world this job called copywriting and presumably it was quite different going from the you know writing in casinos in sydney's because that was effectively a journalism task of reporting on 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 matches it wasn't necessarily creative albeit there's creative ways of reporting no doubt but it wasn't really an ideas based task was it so presumably then going into something which which was a bit more about you know using words to hit an objective or at least creatively and having ideas at their core that must have felt quite alien at first so i i think the way you just described how the match reports should have been is exactly what I was hired <laughs> and expected to, to, to deliver. I wrote my match. I would write a match report on like, you know, West Brom versus Southampton on a Sunday afternoon. And it'd be like a Norm, Norman Mailer piece. You know, it was it was entirely about me and what I thought. And and they, I don't even think they were terrible. I think they were really, really good, but they were bad match reports. So it it was a shock. I think the biggest shock wasn't kind of going from, this kind of reporting stuff because I was I was faking that I would you know that was never really what I was you know what I was good at or what I was ever going to be good at it was more a question of going into a world where I couldn't just write what I wanted or write what I thought was good it was this idea of you know you just said kind of objectives writing with a purpose writing with a different voice and that's you know that is always the hardest thing um you get into copywriting because you love writing you've got a love of words you've got a love of creatively expressing the, the you know your ideas and and you know your your imagination uh, through language and then that's the thing that draws you to copywriting that's the thing that probably you know gets you gets you into the industry and then that's the thing you almost have to very quickly dismantle and abandon and, and sort of leave behind as you uh, as you kind of start to work because it, it becomes you know very much not about you it becomes not about what you like or what you think is good or or what you want to do or what you want to say it's about what would this brand say what does this audience want to hear so it's it's a weird discipline and it's it's kind of a weird it's a weird transition to make from uh, someone who's just got this very pure and very personal love of creative writing into writing for a brand or a business or you know trying to sell a fizzy drink or a lawnmower or what have you but i i genuinely feel as as well as being an incredible skill to learn and something that can kind of take you in 
in some really wonderful directions where you will have a very fulfilling and rewarding and, and sort of surprising career, it makes you a better creative writer as well. And this is what I was sort of saying to our creative writing students. They've all turned up on a creative writing degree, wanting to write their play, wanting to write their novel, wanting to kind of compile a collection of poetry. And I'm there standing in front of them saying, no, no, you want to go write some adverts for Greg's. You want to sort of do a, you know, go and do a jingle for a chicken and mushroom slice. Um, and what I'm trying to convince them is if you get into that world and you can start to experience it and work on these things that take you out of your comfort zone and take you away from the stuff that you're kind of naturally drawn to, it will make you better. It will make you a better craftsperson. It will make you better at formulating ideas. It will make you better at kind of giving voices to your characters. And I, I fully wholeheartedly believe that. I, I, I feel like I come on these things and I'm I'm such an evangelist for copywriting. And, and, and you know, you could very easily listen to this and think I'm, I'm going really overboard with it. But I, I fully believe it. it. You know, copywriting in itself is just a very joyous way to spend your life. But it also it will help you become such you know a much much better richer more interesting writer. Yeah, and and you t you mentioned there about you do teach young people about copywriting, but then equally creative writing. But your creative writing course that's just kicked off, I believe. Do you think that people nowadays are in a better position where they can be made aware of creativity or creative writing in the advertising world versus when you were of that age? many many years ago i i think not enough has changed uh and i think the so the creative writing course i teach on has been running for for a long time at lincoln uh and it's a brilliant course it's a very very popular course and you know they've got some incredible you know incredible staff on it who have written themselves have written some really brilliant stuff and they're amazing teachers um but the reason i have joined the course and i've rewritten one of their modules was because there was no reference to this whole kind of universe of kind of, let's call them commercial writing opportunities. So to be a copywriter in an agency, to be, you know, a content writer, to, to write, uh, to write for brands, you know, on social media, to write, you know, branded podcast content, if you like. And I, I started off with my session with these sort of 70 or 80 sort of students yesterday, engaged enough in the world of creative writing to have kind of committed to three years of a degree. And I asked them, who's heard of copywriting? Who knows what it is? And 10%, 15% maybe put their hands up. And of those 10 or 15%, they had the very most basic knowledge that this thing kind of existed somewhere in the world, but it's not particularly on their radar. And, you know, this is, this is however many years since I left sixth form and thought about what I was going to do at university. And, and these are students who are primed. You know, they are, they are kind of heading in that direction. They've chosen creative writing as a, a focal point for their sort of studies and their future. And they don't know about it. And it's it's sad and it's depressing. And, and you know, you, you add into that the amount of time that agency owners or, or creative directors will message me and say, we're, you know, we're really looking, you know, we're looking for junior copywriters and we're sort of struggling to find them. Can you recommend anyone? And I get that a lot. Now, art directors, uh, designers, you know, people with kind of that visual communication skill, lots and lots of them. You know, I, I could give you sort of, you know, 10, 15, 20 brilliant names. But people who are specialist, young, junior, creative specialist writers, uh, it, it's really hard. It's, it's really hard to kind of think of someone. So I am I'm trying to indoctrinate. I, I've gone into this creative writing thing very much with a like a cult mentality. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to brainwash and I'm trying to kind of divert people away from their novels or their or their poems and, and kind of turn them into copywriters. We'll see.
come back to me in two years and we'll see how successful we've been. Yeah, okay, I will. There, there's two things that I want to pick up on that. One is, you mentioned quite rightly about English teachers pointing towards journalism and writing novels and maybe more kind of, I suppose, a purer uh, form of writing, um, not to suggest that copywriting or creative writing is in any way unpure, although I've read some of your copy. Do you think creative copywriting is just subservient then to that type of literature? And do we perhaps need more English teachers who are copywriters or were once copywriters? I, I think there is the traditional mentality that very much puts copywriting as as kind of sub, subservient to, let's call it, you know, literature. Um, I, I think there's a chapter in the book in Copywriting Is where, where I talk about uh, copywriting is still proper writing. And it, it absolutely is. And I think, you you know, you look at the people who went on to, to kind of write incredible novels who uh, who worked themselves as, as copywriters. I think Dorothy Sayers was a copywriter. I think like Scott, did Scott Fitzgerald do some copywriting for a bit? Joseph Heller certainly did. You know, I, it, it's the two the two worlds are not incompatible. They they kind of cross over. Uh, Benjamin Myers, you know, uh, who wrote uh, the Gallows Pole, which is an incredible book. I've, I've just finished reading, uh, and it's being Shane Meadows is turning it into a, a sort of a TV thing. He was a copywriter. You know, I, I read one of his articles about copywriting not long ago. So I don't think those those worlds are kind of as incompatible as some people would like you to believe. I think if you could get an English teacher uh, into a college, into a sixth form, uh, who had worked in copywriting, who you know just knew enough about that world, um, it, you know you could easily do a class or a couple of classes or, or even a bit more on just brilliant adverts, you know, fantastic adverts that have been written, um, and, and start to kind of introduce that side of things uh, uh, kind of a level but i think it's this is you know if the traditionalist view of a, an english literature course is and i don't know the syllabus or i might be being very dismissive here so apologies if that's the case but if it is just here's some shakespeare here's some thomas hardy here's a token piece of contemporary writing here's a token piece of, of, of kind of modern playwriting here's some poems from world war one um that, you know, feels like such a kind of reductive view of what the kind of possibilities are for you as a young person engaged and interested in words. And yeah, there's a huge amount of, of literature and fiction and poetry we could kind of add into that to freshen it up. But why would you stop there if you've got this whole other kind of world uh, that you could be introducing these young people to, where at the end of that is probably the most viable career for a young writer you know, in this country at the moment, is going to be in the marketing and advertising and branding and, and sort of content world, uh, more so than journalism, more so than kind of, you know, publishing your own stuff. And uh, what I've said to the creative writing students is, uh, you, you know, don't see this as kind of a betrayal of your artistic ideals. Don't see this as you kind of abandoning the dream. Some of those authors I mentioned earlier, they took jobs as copywriters, uh, but they were continually kind of pursuing their own, their own project, their own novel, you know. The difference is that you can go off and be a copywriter and do this job that's paying you money uh, and helping you become a better writer every single day instead of going, well, I'm working on my novel, so I'm going to go and work in a coffee shop or I'm going to go and work as a waiter or I'm going to go and work in a car wash. Um, you know, the two worlds should just be a lot closer together. And, and you know, if you're dismissive, dismissive of advertising, uh, writing for advertising or writing for marketing as a lesser skill, that just proves to me that you've never done it. And, and I'd even put a question mark about whether you'd know how to do it. 
Was that part of the motivation then behind Adele writes an ad then to bring to bring light to the mysterious and confusing job of copywriting? Absolutely, and I think you know me and you have sort of talked about this at, at the very beginnings of that idea. There are children's books about all sorts of jobs, any job you can think of. Some jobs that sound really really rubbish and would would probably make you miserable if you did them for you know forty or fifty years. Um, but in terms of creative jobs. Uh, in, in terms of um, you know the world of the world of advertising and marketing, perhaps, but more so, you know, where you can go out and you can make a living based on purely on your creativity, purely on your imagination. Uh, it feels like you, you've got this audience who is very much primed to hear that. Okay, you, at the moment, all you do is play and think of silly games and and you know tell you know have these weird dreams and you know, the, the lines between kind of reality and, and kind of imagination are very, very blurry. For me to say to that audience, you can keep you can keep in that state. You can re- remain in that state when you are much, much older and you've got your own responsibilities because there's this job, there's this world where you get paid to be imaginative. You get paid to see the world in a, in a slightly strange way. Um, it just felt like a really good fit. Yeah, no, it does. It does. And I, I, I've, I've, um, I've had this conversation, obviously, with you. And for years, I feel like I've been wrestling with that problem of, of how do we expose people to the opportunity and the weird and wonderful creative industry that is advertising and marketing and various other forms of creativity, because it's just a huge, it's a huge problem. I don't know if the problem is to do with the, the syllabuses which are taught at schools. I don't know whether, I mean, there, there, there's various ways it manifests itself. Can you tell us a bit more about the book and just unashamedly plug Adele quickly because I do want to um I do want to make sure we do that I certainly can yes uh so plug plug alert the the book is the story of uh, two copywriters there is Adele she is uh four years old uh because at the time I wrote it my daughter Penelope she was four she's now five and Adele lives with her mum, whose job is she's a submarine captain. So she goes off to sea and she drives her submarine. Uh, but Adele's dad is a copywriter and he stays at home and he sits in front of his computer and he, he kind of comes up with ads for the, for the telly. Uh, and then one day Adele's dad, he lands a brief, he lands kind of the big account. And the biggest account in, in this universe is the Hublahoo account. So Hublahoo is the greatest fizzy drink there is. Each can is filled with froth and fizz. Uh, it's the strap line. And he's delighted. This is kind of the biggest brief of his career. This is going to make him, uh, this is going to nail him a DNAD pencil or whatever the equivalent of that is in our sort of cartoony world. Uh, but then he suddenly crumbles and he freezes and he doesn't know what to do. And he, he his imagination lets him down the pressure of, um, you know, having to having to kind of come up with this concept and coming up with these words. You know, he's, he's hit that kind of, you know, that block. And Adele, who is a girl with a huge imagination, steps in and says, right, grab a pencil, write this down. I'm going to tell you what I think this advert could be. I'm going to tell you a story and I'm going to put Hubla who at the heart of it. And it, it's there are wizard monkeys rescuing their grandmas. There are um, fiendish plates of quiche. There are uh, shark legged uh, frog leg trombones there were shark robot sharks with laser eyes and it's all this very sort of strange and peculiar stuff that could only ever kind of pour out the head of a child um but it's all you know coming back to why is hubla who so great what's the benefit you know as we like to say uh and she she finishes this ad and it's this kind of very weird and wonderful ad that only a child could have produced and her dad's delighted and they send it off and you know we we hope uh it kind of would have made it to telly and uh, it would have been a huge success. So it's a story about, you know, that the 
those kind of creative moments between a sort of parent and a child where it's the it's the parent being led and you have to allow yourself to kind of be led and you have to sort of say yes to stuff and you have to you have to resist the urge to correct you have to uh, resist the urge to to kind of guide someone back to the path of reality you need to go the other way you need to step off you know what you feel like to feel like is the logical and rational way to think about the world and you need to just go along for that kind of creative ride you've got to kind of step into the their imagination because it's it's such a kind of an endless and joyful thing to the imagination of a child so that's what i was trying to do i was trying to kind of bring those two words together uh, two worlds together um initially just for jollies just for fun but then it felt like and it sounds really wanky and i don't mean it this way like it, it has now become like it has a higher purpose and the higher purpose is if you're young if you're full of imagination i think the worst thing that can happen to you is is that kind of gets squeezed out of you because you run out of places to take it and you run out of things to do with it. And too many kind of people and institutions will tell you that imagination is not the thing you can kind of build a career on or build like a grown-up life on. And I think that's fucking nonsense. Uh, And, you know, whether you end up in copywriting or something else, there are so many things as a grown-up where you can kind of use your imagination. Your imagination becomes your, your most important asset. And, and is appreciated and valued and, and, you know, makes money for you and other people. Um, so if the book does a little bit of that and it plants the seed that I don't have to give up on sort of, you know, imaginative uh, whimsy uh, uh, yet. And, and perhaps I never actually do because there's value in it. And, and hopefully if it does that, then I feel like I've achieved my small and smug purpose. <laughs> it's amazing. It's brilliant. I love I, I love the story. As you know, it's it's, I think it's overtaken fantastic Mr. Fox. I love kids' stories. I love silliness, and it's full of silliness. But people listening, if they haven't already, they can go to adelewritesandad.com, um, and for free they can listen to the brilliant Jim Higgins narrate the story. So if you imagine my voice at one end of a spectrum and hers at the other, it's a beautiful, it's it's audio gold. It's, it's I think, just a, a, a word on, on Jem. She So we, we knew straight away that Jem was the, the person we wanted to read it. Um, it was a no-brainer. Her voice is incredible. But even then, you're you know you're not sure how it's going to turn out. These you know these are this was our kind of story and our words and our our kind of characters. And you're handing it over to someone else. And I remember listening to the recording Gem sent through, and it's just that mind-blowing moment where you think this is perfect. Like how can someone have, have, have kind of you know brought this to life and, and kind of filled it with their own their own essence, but captured everything we were trying to do as well. So. I'm not going to praise her any more than that. I think that's probably enough. But. <laughs> it's great. That is great. I, I, it would be wrong not to talk about copywriting is as well. And in your explanation there and talking about the significance of uh, allowing your imagination to be led, your number one bestseller copywriting is... Hey, <laughs> um, <laughs> told you I'd get it in. You, yes, thanks. You, it's, it's, it's interesting uh, in many ways, but it's interesting partly because it doesn't try or claim to teach people how to write copy but it will show people what life as a copywriter is like um and one thing again that's so important and going back to that allowing your imagination to be led um has manifested itself both in a talk you did for isolated talk called creativity in the wild where you walked around a park like a lunatic and conclude that creatives don't do well in captivity and there's this idea of wandering which is a chapter in the book so is that an exercise that you you do with your students is that helpful for copywriters in general yeah i just on on a side note on the isolated talk 
I, I, I thought it would be a brilliant thing to talk about wandering while I was on a wander. <laughs> and I, I anticipated none of the many sort of challenges and hazards that will present. The worst one was I had a really brilliant take. And I was probably about 15 minutes into sort of the 20 minute talk. And there was a big crow and the big crow really startled me. I did a little squeal and had to go back to the very beginning and start again. So that was a, it was a bad idea, but we, we kind of got there in the end. The point of it all was that I, I've always had a problem with desks. I've, I've always had a reputation wherever I've worked where people feel like I can't sit still. You know, if, I, if I'm in a meeting, I, I can't, I, I'm visibly kind of anxious. I'm, I'm twitching. I, I have to stand up. I have to walk around. I, I, I just can't be still because that's not how I think and that's not really how I don't want to fit if you're doing a creative role I think the worst thing you can do is kind of try and fit your creative skills or your creative approach or your creative process into what is kind of accepted as traditional working methods or traditional working environments or even traditional working postures you know you're sat at a desk in an office and you should be there you know during the the specified times of your hours and and that's the space we've we've given you to work in so of course you have to work there and I've never ever been able to do that and you know it's not it's 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 partly I suppose because I'm a you know an overly precious creative and sort of you know autistic temperament is I've been accused of that before but it's it's more primal than that it's a biological thing uh you know the chemistry in my brain just won't allow that and if I sat at my desk for too long, then my brain would would stop even attempting to come up with anything useful. So for years and years and years, I wrestled with it because I thought, well, this makes me weird. This makes me sort of strange. And this makes me kind of unsuited for, for professional life. Even in a creative agency, I felt like I was a bit of the odd one out. And then you slowly kind of come to terms with it and say, well, no, actually, look, if this is how you arrive at your best stuff, and as long as that best stuff meets the brief and impresses your you know, the agency owners and the CD and, and the client buys it and likes it and it goes off and, and is effective. It doesn't really matter where you were or how it, how you kind of arrived at it. And none of that stuff should, should matter, should matter. Uh, but I just wasn't seeing that, that kind of attitude reflected in, in a lot of the kind of the agencies I knew when I worked at, you know, it was an expectation that you would sort of behave in this very sort of conformist sort of way. And my another sort of drum that I've ended up kind of beating relentlessly to a point of really really boring people is that I, I'm just I despise desks I hate I hate desks and I feel like you know writers feel like they they have to be at a desk you know this sort of traditional idea of a writer hunched over a typewriter hunched over a desk of course you have to return to your desk and but I think the desk is the place where it kind of pours out of you um go away and do something else until you reach that state where you feel like, you know, you desperately need your desk. You desperately need a, a pen and a piece of paper to just let this stuff kind of gush out of you. But until you reach that stage, go anywhere. And I think there is, you know, there is a relationship between sort of the, the potency of your imagination and being up and out and walking. You know, I need to, I need to be standing up. I need my feet to be kind of moving. I need the sky. I need to be able to kind of see, look above and see the sky and not those shitty sort of foam tiles and horrible strip lights. And I, I think the relationship between nature and creativity is something that, that far cleverer and more creative people than me have, have always spoken about. But I feel like uh, a lot of the time, copywriters and creatives feel like they don't have permission to do this. 
they feel like they're being difficult. They feel like they're being, you know, deliberately contrary by wanting to be somewhere else, wanting to go for a walk while they think about what they're going to do. And I see it in the students. You know, if I set the students a brief, they've got a really brilliant studio at Lincoln that they can sit and work in, and they will go and sit at a desk and they'll stay there. And again, there's, there's a there's a place and a time for that, and there's a place for saying we need to be outside, we need to be moving, we need to kind of trying to get our brains into a certain state. And they're so reluctant to do it because they've been brought up in a sort of a teaching environment where you sit still, face to front. And uh, I think there's so much kind of dewiring, deprogramming you need to do to to kind of young creative people and you know and very experienced creative people that says find your own way, find your own state, find your own kind of environment, uh, find your own process, find the best time of day that works for you, find the place in the world that is most inspiring to you. Uh, and once you've found that stuff make use of it um i i think sort of habit and routine and and sort of you know the comfort of being in the same place looking at the same stuff it might feel comfortable it might feel cozy and it might feel safe but ultimately creatively you don't want any of those things you don't want to feel comfortable and cozy you want to feel challenged you want to feel like your perspective is continually being kind of renewed and I, that's what it was all about essentially it was just this give yourself that permission to move and if you're in a place that that totally objects to, to that and totally refuses you know your your permission to go out and be creative in the way that will be best for you and ultimately you know result in the best work then that business doesn't understand creativity and it doesn't understand the way creative people work and you know that's a casts a huge question mark about whether you want to be there or not i, I couldn't agree more with everything you've said which i don't like to admit I was going to say, I'm, this has never happened. <laughs> I'm going to dub it out anyway. So copywriting is then, does not teach you how to write copy, but it does teach you how to be a copywriter. Is that fair to say? I think so. I think so. There are some incredible books that teach you how to be a copywriter. Um, our friend, Giles Lingwood. Spelt wrong. Spelt wrong. And he supports Arsenal. He's like the anti-Giles. <laughs> I've never seen you two in a room together, so I, I reckon you're just two two sides of the same twisted coin um but he he's written a book called read me if your readers don't know about read me it's fantastic it's it's kind of one of the very best books that teach you how to be a writer teach you sort of the craft of it i i couldn't write that book and i wouldn't i i wouldn't want to try and write that book because i think there are so many sort of guides to copywriting really brilliant ones that exist already it, mine would have just been another version of the same thing but bad um, so it was the intention was always to write something that was never a guide to how to be a copywriter. It was almost a window into the life of a copywriter. Vicky Ross described it in an amazing way, described it far better than I did, annoyingly. She said, it's my love letters to copywriting. And that's exactly what it is. It's this incredible life that has filled me with, with kind of so much happiness and so many sort of weird and surprising and unsettling things. And this kind of constantly, uh, constantly new and fresh and kind of unexpected uh, way to kind of make make a living um and it's exactly that it's i i've loved it i've loved it you know i've loved every moment of, of what i've been allowed to do you know that i've accidentally bumbled into this world and 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 kind of it's become such a huge part of my life and a huge part of who i am as a person so it is a love letter to it and um i'm not saying it's always it's always joyful it's an it's a profession that comes with a lot of frustrations and a lot of very sort of strange and uh you know strange and, and, and depressing moments you know but fundamentally it's it's you're getting paid to to kind of be peculiar to be interested to be curious about the world and to turn that into something through words that is is going to kind of stand out and make a difference 
Awesome. Um, I've got a couple of listener questions for you, mate. Okay. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. And we have two. We sent one to you to give you time to prep, but I, I found out uh, just before we pressed record that you hadn't read our email <laughs> particularly well. I'm going to hit you with that one first. So, Okay, excellent. I'm going to wing it. Yeah, okay, yeah, good luck. Fellow Call to Action alumni and word man Dave Harland asks, it's a well-known fact that the word rhythms is the longest word in the English language that doesn't contain any vowels. But can you tell me your top three favourite words that don't contain any consonants with a detailed explanation why you love each oh, word? fuck off, Dave. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, right, okay. So there, there's a lesson in here, isn't there, about reading your emails and sort of, you know, preparing for these things properly. There's also a lesson in, I, I feel like if I had have read that, I still wouldn't have made any effort to have a proper answer ready for it. So with Halloween coming up, my answer to this is going to be my first one, with no consonants in it, is the word ooh. And that's probably about seven O's. And I like that because it works lots of different ways. It likes that. Uh, it works in a um, a spooky context. Yeah. And it works in a, that's a nice jacuzzi bath you've just bought, Giles, context. And that's the only two contexts it works in. My next one, with no consonants, is the word e, which I feel is the sound you would make if you were going on a mid-speed water slide at a water park. So it's not an intensive water slide, because that's more of a ah, but like a e is is kind of water slide noise. And that's it. That's all I'm doing. What a fucking awful question. <laughs> Oh, I'm not. I'm watch. not Dave Hardland's dancing monkey, and he you needs are. to know that. <laughs> oh, wonderful! Right, uh, question two then is from a fantastic mutual friend and friend of the show, Sophie Cross. Sophie Cross. Sophie Cross. She asks if you were living in a hut in the desert on your own, which is probably quite likely. Let's be honest. For one hundred days with plenty of provisions, what would you write? What would I write? Yeah, you've got 100 days on your Todd in a desert. I'd, I'd go back, to, I'd revisit my Cold War spy thriller radio play that I wrote in 2002. Um, and I'd, I'd see if I could make it good. I love, I love you know, I'm, I'm a big reader and I, I try and read lots of different stuff. And, uh, but I also, I end up coming back to things that just give me the most joy and that is usually kind of graham green and and john le Carre. and like john le Carre in particular i think the craft of that you know of being able to write these sort of very intricate but very sort of compelling uh sort of spy thrillers with such a, a unique you know the george smiley character i is my literary hero i think he's such a unique character uh it, it would be my dream to to kind of be able to write in that way, uh, uh, in that kind of subject. But I honestly feel like I couldn't do it. I think I feel like I'd be so bad at it. So what I would use my hut in the desert for, I'd write a play. I love the idea of writing a play. I don't know what it'd be about. It'd be about two idiots called Giles, and they spell their names differently, <laughs> but they're both idiots. <laughs> and they're standing there waiting for someone to arrive who never arrives. I don't know what it would be about, but that would be my starting point. 
Uh, and then Dave Holland would turn up and he'd ask you a really complicated question that you couldn't answer on the spot and he'd ruin the whole play. Uh, but yeah, a play. I, I feel like uh, I'm. Uh, it's one of those things where you you kind of grow up as a writer and you you do cast off certain ambitions you had. And it's not a sad thing. It's not a sad thing to have kind of let go of what you once thought was going to be the thing you'd, you'd do and you really wanted to do. You just learn a little bit more about what you're capable of and what you're good at and what you would, you know, what would you be able to spend your time on. But a play is one of those things where even if nothing ever happened with it and no one ever made it and no one ever wanted to, to see it, I'd feel like I'd just like to do that. I'd like to get it out of my system. Nice. Good answer. Good answer. So thanks, Sophie Cross, for asking a proper question that is answerable. Well, thank you, Sophie. And thank you, Dave. Thank you, no, Dave. Um, fuck him. <laughs> the final part then of our interview, Andrew, is our four pertinent posers. So number one is what advice would you give to your younger self? I I would be, I'm bad at advice. And I'm, I'm probably no better at advice as a 40-year-old 40, 40 as, I, as I was at a 20-year-old. I think I there's a song by the Divine Comedy called A Charmed Life. Uh, and I, I, I feel like I've, I've, you know, very luckily and not through any, any sort of hard work or any sort of redeeming features on my part. I've, I've had a, I've had a charmed life. I've, I've ended up in a place that has brought me a lot of joy. And often I, I've kind of ended up in, in sort of happy situations, um, by being an idiot and, and bumbling into things and not knowing too much about the world I was kind of going into and, and just kind of going along with it. So I, I think it's almost my advice to, to young me would be, be, you know, be wary of advice. Uh, there, there is no kind of clear and definite path to anything. Uh, and, and just, you know, just because you might have missed a turning that you thought was going to kind of take you to a certain place in your life. It doesn't mean that was the right place to be in. And it doesn't mean that 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 would be your, your only chance to get there. I, I suppose I kind of breeze along. I, I think if that was going to be my, my approach to anything and, just allowing yourself to kind of be blown along isn't always a bad thing and it doesn't make you a passive character it just means you're kind of open to open to surprises really cool good advice ironic advice it, i don't think it was advice. good advice i don't think it was good no, advice. I, I have to be polite to guests uh if, if it was it was good advice it was good advice right if you if you could banish one thing from the industry what would it be and why i think i did you kind of give a really contrary answer again i feel like i've answered both of these questions with not really an answer i would ban it wouldn't be you if you didn't no that's fair i i think i would banish the need to banish and i think that this <laughs> there's not always i know i know i'm sorry you can edit all of this out um, I, I feel like there is there is too much uh, there there is too much proprietorialness perhaps in the creative side of our industry where a, you know certain generations might feel like it was better in their day and and uh, you know new generations might feel like it's all about um, you know it, it's all about the the platform or the media or, or the kind of the advances that made it in that world and. And I, I'm a fine with both of those kind of perspectives, providing you are never, that never means that you're dismissive of the other thing. And I think, um, you know, we, we, I, I've got a real problem with this kind of, uh, you know, blinkered, you know, 
let's call it negative nostalgia if you like where you constantly look back and think things were so much better in the past and and in the past there was only ever brilliant work being produced and there was no rubbish and nowadays everything's rubbish and there's no good work those things aren't true you know there is good work incredible work amazing writing amazing kind of creative ideas coming through all the time there was incredible creative ideas in the past but there was bad stuff in the past as well and in in a way i don't think the industry has changed as much as as kind of perhaps we like to think it has or some people believe it has but i think if you're looking for something to throw out of it if you're always looking on the creative side i'm i'm talking about if you're always looking to something that you can kind of dismiss or devalue or say doesn't have a right to kind of be a part of of kind of what we do or what we've all sort of been doing. I don't know. It just, I think all it does is create division and it, and it kind of makes people feel bad and it makes people feel defensive. And when you feel defensive, you end up attacking the thing that's attacking you. And there should be harmony uh, amongst kind of the creative people who worked in kind of marketing and advertising, you know, no matter how old you are or where you did it or the type of work you did, you know, the pressures of it, you know, the challenges of it, you know, the frustrations, you know, that it's not always about the best idea is going to kind of win through. And I just think give people credit for what they are doing and what they've done. Give them your support, you know, don't just kind of, you know, pile in and say, well, that's fine. But you know, things are different in my day and my day was better. You know, just open your eyes to the fact that the world that that, that existed either before or, or after you were doing this thing has still got a lot of positives to it. It's still got a lot of kind of hope. It's got a lot of people um, with the right intentions and, and incredible skills and real commitment doing the best they can and doing interesting stuff and trying to kind of push boundaries. It doesn't matter if, you know, the mechanics of how to be a creative have changed dramatically you know, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, that's irrelevant. You know, you've got to think about what the essence of being a creative person in this industry is. And I think just celebrate that. Celebrate the good stuff that's happening now. Celebrate the good stuff that was happening then. Good answer. I mean, it started off, I thought, I thought you're going to be difficult just for the no, sake no. of it. But you actually, no. you actually made a lot of sense. Okay, so this, this question, I promise I'll answer properly. Okay, any books that you would recommend to our listeners? So we will, of course, link to both Copywriting Is and Adele Writes an Ad. Um, can I can I assume you would recommend Read Me? Because you should. I, I would wholeheartedly recommend Read Me. I think it's really fantastic. Um, I'm a big fan of, of Junior by Thomas, uh, Thomas Kemeny. Um, I've chatted to him very briefly on LinkedIn, and he's an absolutely lovely man. Uh, and he, he sort of helped us sort of spread the word about copywriting is. But I think Junior is a really fantastic book. It's a beautiful book, uh, but there's, there's so much kind of wisdom in it, and it's a very sort of entertaining read. Um, what else? I mean, I suppose what, the, the one thing, I'm, I'm sort of slipping into kind of contrariness again, so sorry, I'm going to do it anyway. The one thing I would say is even if you know copywriting is your passion and it's kind of either where you want to be in the world or where you are right now and you want to be better and know more, um, the best thing a copywriter can do is is just read. It doesn't have to be uh, it doesn't have to be a book about the craft of copywriting to make you better at writing. I think whatever you're reading, just make sure you're you're capturing the stuff that inspires you, the capturing the stuff that kind of teaches you something about the art and the craft and the and the business of writing a really sort of effective sentence, a really compelling sentence, a sentence that that sort of stands out and is memorable and, and you know makes you kind of think about the world in a different way. 
So whoever you're reading, you just, you know, that's good. You're, you're reading something and you're going to be learning and you, you're going to be absorbing. Um, but just try and kind of make the effort to kind of record that. But, you know, if, if it is copywriting books and that kind of stuff, then definitely read me. Uh, Glenn Fisher's book, I, I think he's fantastic. I'm really excited to see Glenn Fisher's novel. I think it's going to be a bit, it's going to be really complicated. It's going to be too clever for me, but I'm going to read it anyway and tell him I understood it because he's a very, very smart guy. Um, but his copyright book, I think he's up. He promised me there's a character called Giles in it, but I think he's just playing with me. I think it's a, a Giles with a Y, though. Because <laughs> that would be just a kick in the nuts, wouldn't it? You almost made it, but then you just got usurped by better Giles. Awesome. Are there, are there any spy thrillers then or anything? Because it, you're, you're not being as contrarian as you think, because we're not asking just solely for industry books. So any any books of any shape or size. Would I, OK, I, I think if you have never read sort of Graham Greene, I'm a, I'm a Graham Greene sort of fanboy. Um, I, and I keep going back to sort of Graham Greene like over and over again, books I've, I've sort of, you know, probably read every year for the last 15 years, like The Quiet American and Comedians, End of the Affair. Um, he he does like a really remarkable thing with words, and he's he's you know we talk about voice in advertising and voice and tone, and he's got such a distinctive voice as an author, and there's, there's such a heavy sense of a heavy sense of melancholy throughout all of it, and it's this kind of you know this this kind of poetic sorrow in these really incredible exotic places, and it's always these kind of outsiders, these lonely characters. I think I'm drawn to sort of loneliness in in, in fiction and. Um, I've always considered myself sort of a, something of a, a, a kind of a lone wolf, even though I've got a lovely family and, and like lots of friends and uh, and I'm, I'm in a job where I'm surrounded by people all the time. I, I feel I feel like a sense of peace when I'm on, I, I, I'm on my own and I feel like I always need that sort of solitary time. And again, that was one of those things where I thought was, was sort of very strange and very you know unusual. And you kind of come to terms and think, well, no, this is this is a very normal state to kind of be in. And if it makes you happy and it gives you that sort of sense of a balance then you know no one can say that there's any problem with it but in graham green you read that and you, you you know you read his stuff and you feel this sense of of the sort of the solitary life and, and the sort of slightly lonely lonely figures and, and sort of the beauty in that so uh i i feel like graham green doesn't need me uh to to tell you how good he is but if you've never read any and you're a writer and you want to kind of discover more about you know, a real master of the craft, a real master of of creating theme and tone and, and pacing and story and character. Uh, I'd, I'd urge you to go out and get anything, anything he's written and just, you know, start there. Perfect. OK, well, we'll link to um, to Graham Greene's collection of novels. We'll link to Giles with a wise read me, Junior and Glenn's Brilliant, The Art of the Click. And so number four, then, is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? I'm going to dedicate this episode to uh, to my daughter, my daughter Penelope, um, because she is she is Adele in Adele Writes an Ad. You know, she... Uh, if I didn't have her running around the house, uh, waking me up in the morning, telling me about a dream, and a dream was that me and her flew on a massive seagull to have a picnic uh, on a, an island made of slush puppies. Her imagination is incredible, and that fills me with joy and hope, and and so so much so much love when she sort of tells me these weird and crazy things that pour out of her head. So she she is Adele without without her presence and and sort of the way she is and her character. I, I wouldn't have written that book. And that book is, you know, 
probably the thing I'm I, I'm sort of proudest of, I suppose, um, because uh, because it feels like it's sort of telling the story of of us, of like our little family, and uh, and and hopefully that is something kind of Penelope can hold on to, and and like other other little girls and little boys who are like Penelope, they can hold on to their kind of their imagination. So I think it's only fair that that seeing as she's not going to get any money from Adele, I'm going to keep all of that. <laughs> I'm going to buy myself the best soda stream on the market and she won't see a penny of it. It's only fair that I dedicate this podcast to Penelope. This episode is very proudly dedicated to Penelope then. Wonderful. Uh, so as a, as a final call to action, everyone listening can head over to this episode to find links to everything we've discussed from, from both copywriting ears, Adele, all the recommendations. How else can our listeners get more Andrew Bolton? I, I'm, on, I'm on the Twitter the Twitter machine. I threaten to leave it every day, but I'm still there. Uh, uh, Boltini, at Boltini, B-O-U-L-T-I-N-I. I'm on LinkedIn. You'll find me on there. Where else can you find me? I think that's it. I think I, I don't particularly exist as a human outside of those two social media platforms. Uh, but that'll do. That'll be a start. If you, if you need me, you want to chat to me, I, I always love to hear people who have, who have bought either of the books and have loved them. Um, it's a really, really uplifting and motivating thing to hear. So, yeah, please feel free to reach out. If you didn't like them, then fuck you. Don't talk to me about it. <laughs> well, that, <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, thank you for joining us, mate. We both know I would rather have spoken to Michael Bolton, uh, but it's been a pleasure nonetheless and a privilege, My, mate. Michael Bolton wouldn't have put up with your bullshit for 59 <laughs> minutes. He's famous. He's really famous. Yeah, he's great. He had lovely hair. Right, finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. We hugely value your support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or just email hello at callteraction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.